Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I'm recording this episode on Denim Day. Uh, I'm going to tell you guys in a little bit what is Denim Day. We're going to talk about why so many women are not reporting the incidents of sexual assault. Uh, what are some of the dynamic that plays into it? And I'm going to be having this conversation with one of my esteemed colleagues and friend, Dr. Carmen Roman. But before we get into our episode today, I wanted to remind you guys that in my group practice, we're starting a, a group around supporting people to have a better relationship with their bodies. And this the group called Reshaping Body Image. It's It will be led by one of our excellent therapists, Bahar Mohaban. And uh, we're going to talk about and strategies that you can use to rebuild a healthy relationship with your body. Because if you don't feel good about your body, it certainly impacts how, sh- how you show up sexually in bedroom, how you show up in your relationship. And it's important to do to do some work around that because this is not an issue that usually gets resolved based on my experience as we age if we don't address those issues it become more pronounced for us so the group start on Sunday May 26th and we'll go for eight session. It's going to be an intimate group of individuals wanting to learn the skills. Very affordable. It's $40 per session and it's first come first serve. So if you're interested to participate in this group, you can email me at drmoali at sexologypodcast.com or you can give me a call at 310-600-9912. So back to the denim day. And if you're curious what day is it, it's on April 24th. And it's a denim day because of what happened in 1992 in Italy. So there was this 18-year-old girl that she was taking her first driving uh, lesson by a 45-year-old driving instructor. What happened is the guy sexually assaulted the girl, the woman, and told her if she tells anyone she would uh, kill her. So thank God that the girl trusted her parents and they talked. Uh, she talked to her parents about what happened. They pressed charge, uh, charges. And what happened is they kind of like said that they overturned the earlier ruling that that there was a, it was a crime. What happened was they said that because the girl was wearing very tight jeans, she had to help the perpetrator to remo- remove them. Therefore, this wasn't uh, non-consensual, which is bullshit. Like, I don't know how people get a, got away get away with this kind of claims and got away with this claims. And I guess one of the Italian Supreme Court, uh, they stated as part of their decision that it is a fact of common experience that is nearly impossible to sleep off tight jeans, even partly without the active collaboration of the person who's wearing them. 
Thank God in 2008, uh, they overturned their findings and there's no longer a denim defense. But that's that's why on April 24th, people call it the denim day. And as you know, April uh, is a sexual assault awareness month and women around the world and men wearing denim in the uh, kind of honor of the what happened to that girl and what a bullshit <laughs> ruling that was. One of my, uh, one of the third in my practice, Shannon, her specialty is on trauma and she wrote this wonderful blog post about it. I'll leave a link in the show notes. So back to our conversation today, we're going to talk about why it's so common for many survivors to not report the sexual assault and why people after years and years and decades at times decide to report and what to believe and what not to believe. And and I know this can be a, a charged uh, conversation, but I think it's an important one to have because I feel there is this misconnect, disconnect between people who are on the side of believing the, uh, every single woman who makes a claim and there are people that are having the belief that uh, maybe the person contributed to what happened. And I certainly heard both sides of the story. And I think it's wonderful that we have Dr. Carmen Roman to have this conversation with. This is also part of the interview that I was aired in her show, Emotion in Harmony. Dr. Roman, she's a very seasoned psychologist. She she has more than 25 years experience with helping people with these situations of sexual abuse, sexual assaults. And she earlier, I know that a few years ago now, it's ironic this a few years ago, I interviewed her because she was training priests uh, people who wanted to be priests in Mexico and wanted to take an oath for celibacy. And she was the uh, therapist that was na- helping them navigate this is a, whether it's the right decision for them or not, how to manage your sexuality. Because if you, even if you're a priest, we all are human beings and there are going to be times that we feel sexually aroused. So that was, that's one of her specialties. I don't know if she still does it or not, but I thought that was an interesting experience to have. I leave a link to that uh, episode in the show notes. So if you're curious to learn more about that, you're certainly welcome to do so. So Dr. Carmen Roman is a dedicated clinical psychologist who helps parents, families, and community leaders who have suffered from trauma, anxiety, or stress to manage their emotions, guiding them to a harmonious life. And she is also the host of bilingual podcast, Emotions in Harmony. And if you are interested to learn more about her, her show, definitely check her out. I leave a link to that episode, that the episode that we did together in the show notes and also a link to her website. Anyhow, I hope you find this information helpful. One thing that I wanted to emphasize is that this episode might bring up some emotions and might be a triggering topic for you if you experienced sexual assault in the past. So if you find yourself overwhelmed, feel free to give a call to RAIN organization. It's a free confidential hotline and it's 24-7 and the number is 1-800-656-HOPE. Or you can chat with a, a mental health professional or a person hopefully that's trained in this area at RAIN.org. 
Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Carmen Roman. Hi, Nasanin. How are you doing? Good. I'm very excited to be here. I know we were talking about how this topic is very needed. And thank you so much for organizing this conversation. Yes, I am very excited too. So what do we do? We say Dr. Nasanin or Dr. Moali? Oh, please call me Nas. <laughs> Nas, <laughs> <That's> okay. okay. <laughs> I am very, also very excited because it's very needed. It's a very needed topic. And I have been thinking for a long time, even before all of this political scandal, of course. But it's part of every day. After 25 years of doing therapy, trust me, it's part of every day tra- practice. And I imagine it's the same for you. Unfortunately, yeah. these, these stories we hear it often in our practices and also in personal life. And what's interesting and to us, it's we totally understand why sometimes victims kind of wait and survivors wait to report. And again, it's it's understandable, but I know for many of our listeners and audience, people kind of get confused why people wait to report these cases of sexual assault, why they keep it as secret. So I think just such an important thing to bring up. Yeah, that's right. Well, let's start. Let's talk about the emotional barriers. What, what we found in therapy that are the emotional barriers that people have to report? Well, one of the main things that I see, it's feeling of shame and guilt that people have. Kind of thinking about, I did something wrong that I brought this upon myself. And again, it's just part of it. It's coming from our culture. For example, I have many of my clients that, well, before they got assaulted, they were at a party, they had few glasses of wine or alcohol. And they kind of like blame themselves that maybe because I drank alcohol, that opened the door for assault. Or it was the way I was dressed. It's not how good girls are not quote unquote dressing that way. So because I dress that way, called for this kind of uh, inappropriate of sexual assault. So it could be a range of different things. But in my experience, at core of it, it's a feeling of shame and guilt that people are experiencing. And that's why they're not want to kind of share with others that I had that experience. Or also because they didn't say no. Yeah, sometimes it's like, oh, I didn't say no, but I was visible uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or I was physically trying to get that person out of me. So they, they also have this feeling that they are going to be accused. Mm-hmm. That's such a strange feeling because we don't get accused when we get any other kind of crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this for this particular, we get accused. Yeah, I also find that this fear, mm-hmm. fear of the repercussions that will bring to the family, to their family, to the abuser family, to the social circle in general especially if they are still in contact with the abuser. Exactly. The fear of retaliation, I feel it's huge because part of it, if they are at a place that it's power dynamic, that can be very scary to kind of out the person who has power over you. For example, if it's a job or I can talk about, for example, when I moved here to United States, I came alone, I was 17. And I think... I went to the office hour of a, a college professor, again, like maybe first year that I came. And the the guy, the professor, 
he, the way he touched my, so I was wearing scared and he started touching my leg when he was talking to me. And I was feeling shocked about what was going on. But I was, I talked to myself, first of all, I didn't know what are the resources out there? Who should I report to? Imagine I just immigrated to this country. The other piece of it, it's, it's easier to believe the person in power, right? So the professor at times I know at USC, they just lost their dean for this kind of behavior. So there are a lot in stake. Like there are, the risks are huge for people outing the perpetrator. And it's understandable when they have fears. And also the history about it, because a victim may know stories of others who reported and didn't went well. So knowing that can be emotionally like losing hope that somebody right. will believe me, somebody, sometimes even victims of the same abuse. Or I have families where they are the victims and they know or they suspect that some other women in the family, like the cousin or the sister or whatever, and they are not even willing to talk to that person. Or even if they ask, the other person may say, Don't, it's not your business, yeah. So this, this kind of secrecy could be an emotional barrier too. Right, and distrust of the system. Yeah. So I feel like injustice in the system is a real thing. You know, people, minorities, people of color, sometimes they have this long history of injustice when they reported things to legal system, to schools. So it's understandable, similar to what you said, that if like your cousin tried to report something and the person was blamed or didn't believe on or the legal system didn't necessarily took it as serious to be believed that why I would be different. What would be the point of putting myself and my family through the pain of reporting? Yeah, yeah. And also it has to do something that uh, with age, that if I am an adult, I knew what I was doing because sometimes examples are when they are under age, yeah. But if something happened after they are 18, it's like, oh, I, I put myself in that situation because I should know better. Mm-hmm. But we forget that this has to do with the abuse. With the, It's an abuse, normally an abuse of power or it's a, a situation that, calls for an abuse, yeah. And I love your point of saying that the fact that verbally you didn't say no, you give permission to perpetrate it, to do what, whatever it, he or she did. Because at times, some people, their response in this stressful situation, they freeze. So it doesn't mean that you, you ask mm-hmm. for your or allowed it. Now the new concept of consent is enthusiastic yes. So it's just not a matter of the person not saying no. But if you don't have yes for a specific behavior, you, it's safe to imagine there was no consent. I like that point. Thank you. Because you're right. It's in moments of fear, we can freeze. Mm-hmm. In moments of confusion, we can freeze also. So it's, it will be extremely difficult to say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I like that. An enthusiastic yes needs to be in the, <laughs> in the recipe for a good sexual encounter. Absolutely. Also, I found that people don't report because they have their dignity in compromise Mm -hmm. and they feel already compromised. So they don't want to be more in compromise. Yeah, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And also in a community, definitely for my community that are more collectivistic and I can imagine in some other communities are like that. Even you kind of reporting this, not only at time 
you feel shame about what happened to yourself, at times you feel like you brought shame to the family. Mm-hmm. And the concept of dignity as you were talking about, you're impacting the family, the image that they have in their community and all of that. And at times it's easier to tell yourself, you know, I'm going to process it. I'm going to push through it myself versus kind of putting my family and myself in a vulnerable place in the community. Yeah, that's right. So we are kind of getting into the next area of the topic. What is a true belief and what is a false belief for the victim? Well, first thing that comes to my mind is, and we heard it, that only bad girls are getting raped or assaulted. Because, and again, it's understandable. We all want to want to think there's justice in the world. Bad thing doesn't happen to good people. But unfortunately, that's how things are. Sometimes, and most of the time in these cases, there is nothing that the person did that was wrong. And still they experience what they, they unfortunately experience. That's right. And actually, I may tell you also that when I was very well-dressed and all more covered because my parents were very Catholic conservative. So I have all dressed all to the neck and very long sleeves and everything. I, I was more at risk in the public transportation. It happened more things to me than when I started dressing more, <laughs> <laughs> more sexy, let's put it. So it has it's nothing to do. It's like bad person, good person, what that color, not color is. Mm-hmm. is the, if you are vulnerable, that's the secret for being at risk. Yeah. Right, right. The other thing is that I think is about that people thinking you can like this rape, people who do sexual assault or rapists, they are uh, kind of sex star people. They're insane. You can, you can see when you see, look at the person whether they did it or not. And that's not true. Sometimes good people do bad things. And the fact that they have this higher education coming from this kind of family, it doesn't show us that, okay, they didn't that, that behave, doing that behavior. Because as we're going to talk about it later on, it's unfortunately the issue is a systematic issue. Yeah. So again, just the fact that you think the person is a good person doesn't give proof that they didn't do the behavior. Yes, thank you for that. So that's another false belief, like nobody. And sometimes it's true, uh, Nas, because if the person is well-known in the community and is a spiritual leader or some kind of on the good side of people, it will be harder Mm -hmm. for people to believe. Yeah, they will tend to disbelieve the victim. So the victim must be ready for that. And a true belief or a true thing that I see again and again in my clients is that the police or the investigation units can be unsensitive sometimes and can be judging or accusing or asking questions that they shouldn't be asking Mm -hmm. or sometimes asking the client to repeat the story for their own sake of pleasure rather than the investigation itself, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Such a great point you're bringing up. Because sometimes I hear from my clients that definitely in the past I heard from them that I don't want to report because I don't want to repeat this story over and over again. And up to the point that they get kind of like people's, like the legal system start acting on it. People usually report, like talked about this story dozens of times and can be very painful, as you said. So it's important to keep, like understand that unfortunately that might be the part of the process, as you said. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And one of the crimes 
as I was telling before, this is one of the crimes where we tend to question the victim, where we tend to not believe the victim. And let's be real, for anything, we don't like to be questioned. We don't like to... It's so vulnerable already to say what we think of how we feel. In general, can you imagine when we are talking about an event that involves talking about vagina and penis mm-hmm. and sexual contact? And I mean, for the Latino community, sometimes it's a very hidden topic, even mm-hmm. talking normal events, not a crime. So it's a true barrier to talk mm-hmm. about these topics. Because something else that comes to my mind is that if you dated the person, it cannot be sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And that just breaks my heart because most of the sex crimes and sexual assault comes from the kind of dating relationship, day trip, what we call it. The fact that you were at the person's house because you guys were dating or you gave consent for maybe kissing doesn't Mm -hmm. justify the fact that you gave him or her permission to do other sorts of things. And still that can be very painful and traumatic if the person you're dating doing things that you didn't consent. Or you marry the person. Because mm-hmm. it can be in the marriage and it's like, oh, it's, it happens so many times. It's like how I can go and accuse my own husband, especially if they are children involved. Right. Yeah. So... By the way, I always like to say when we talk about these difficult topics, I like to say this is a very sensitive topic that it may wake up emotions, Mm -hmm. difficult discomfort as you are listening this episode. Mm -hmm. So please stop, breathe, take care of yourself. You can come back in pieces to this episode. And it requires some bravery. It requires courage to see, to listen this episode and self-care. So please. If you are listening to this episode, just be aware of that. And, and don't quit on us. Just, just take care <laughs> and come back. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, Nas, but I don't know for you, but sometimes we talk these topics every day, almost every day in, in, as part of our work, that we can be insensitive of how difficult it is. Could right. Be. No, yeah. And also, it's, I surprise myself and at times get very kind of emotional around this topic. So can I, unfortunately, sexual assaults, especially like in women and of course in men, it's a real thing. But in women, I I hear about it a lot in my practice. Like statistics show 17% of women, either they experience a completed rape or they experience an attempt. So it's common thing. But even when I was listening to the Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, all of those interviews and Dr. Ford's conversation, I find myself in this kind of state of hypervigilance. Yeah. I was crying. And again, I, I don't have any kind of big T trauma when it comes to these kind of sexual assault experiences. But I, as a psychologist, that I am familiar with things, I found myself very dysregulated. So I can imagine that if someone who had the personal experience with these things, these are very challenging things to listen and are going to pay attention to. I was not even brave enough to listen to anything mm-hmm. because it's like, oh my God, I want to rest from my job. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we have a tough yeah. job. It, it is so sensitive topics and, and that also helps the victim to find and to seize the moment when it's a good moment to share. Mm-hmm. Because it could be that they share 
in their early years. And it was not the best moment. The person was more traumatized than willing to listen. It is a very difficult topic to share. Right. Right. So I appreciate that you're suggesting people kind of to do a self-care and pace themselves when they're getting exposed to these topics. Part of my career, in the first three years of my career, we were working with a community in, in Guadalajara, in Mexico, that it was an organization only dedicated to sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. It was all we did. Mm-hmm. And my job was to, when the teenagers came and reported themselves and they seek services, my job was to call the mother or the fa- or the parents. Oh and, my god! And and let them know. And many times it was I was my job. It was kind of the liaison between the teenager and the parents. Mm-hmm. Many times the father didn't come, only the mother. Mm-hmm. And many times the response was, "Oh my god, the family's name is disgraced now. How could you?" It was all kinds of reactions mm-hmm. and. It was mostly a reaction than actually a meaningful, true response, yeah. It was right. mostly a reaction out of the surprise. Mm-hmm. So my job was kind of a intervene to solve the reaction. And then sometimes I needed to talk fierce with the parents. So, Such a challenging job you had. <laughs> yeah, it was very challenging at that time. And I was very brave. I was, I was in my 20s. So I was brave and justice <laughs> and everything. <laughs> It's funny, I find that in a career with the hardest things. I remember I was working at a a group home for children who were sexually abused. And I don't know if right now I have it in my soul to hear the stories that I used to hear. So I guess like the younger you are, you have more courage and you're braver to face these things. And all of this is to say, if you are a victim of sexual abuse or sexual crime and you haven't said anything for years, or you say something and they seem to be not the correct response, don't, don't be so hard. It could be that it's really surprising or it's really painful to listen. So the false belief is that the impression that the person is powerless. We all have power. I found to believe that even though with our mind, even though if you are in the most difficult situation, your mind still is with you. So we all have power, but it's the impression that we don't have power because we just were victims, yeah? I think that's such a great information to remind people and kind of, okay, in that moment, maybe you were in this kind of fight or flight response. And again, we have power around how we perceive things. We have power around what are we going to do with this trauma that happened to us. And we have power or now how to share it, when to share it, if we want to share it. Mm-hmm. Because we, this episode is not about encouraging people to share their stories, just to understand the dynamics about it. Mm-hmm. And also they believe that nobody will believe their story. Mm-hmm. I find in these stories that there is always somebody somewhere mm-hmm. willing to believe. Right, that is right. Because at times, even in the most difficult situation that I've seen, parents at times surprising me, mm-hmm. like, you know, choosing to believe their children versus their spouse that provided for family or like grandfather who, who was kind of in a very unfortunate situation. There was lots of consequences, but the mother chose to leave the daughter. So you're right. There are so many people out there un- unless, I guess you have to be ready to share, but you might get surprised when you share it with people that you can trust. 
they can surprise you with how, how much they have your back. Yes. And sometimes you need to try more than one person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Until you find somebody who believes you. The next topic that I have in mind is what are the best ways a victim can protect herself or himself when doing the report? So I think one thought that I have is it's important to, first of all, have a good self-care system, knowing that if you're reporting, this is going to be challenging. So what am I going to do to take care of myself? What are the support systems that I can put in place for self-care for myself and support system out there? At times, you know, for example, if you're a person of color, if you're not familiar with the culture, with the system, there are advocates out there that they can navigate you, help you with the reporting process. Because sometimes it's important to be able to know how to navigate the system. So if you're kind of scared, you don't need to do it alone. There are so many patient advocates that they can help you, client advocates. So definitely reach out to those supports and advocate system, advocacy systems. Yes. The beautiful thing is there is always those organizations that they already dedicate themselves to it. So yes, you're right. You, that's a good point. You don't need to do it alone. You can also find emotional shelter, not only help for advocacy, but emotional shelter in somebody like a friend, a family member, a therapist, a spiritual leader before in, in a preparation to report. And insist that and let them know what, how you feel and what you need help with. So it's possible to find groups of victims around in the community, as you mentioned. I don't know, sometimes even you can form your own group. And something else that comes to my mind is, for example, if unfortunately something happened and I don't know, 24 hours ago or something happens, if you're going for medical examination, it doesn't mean that you're going to report. It just gives you insurance that if you decide to move forward, you're going to have additional resources. So don't feel discouraged that, okay, if I'm going to go for kind of to get a rape kit or medical assessment, it's, it's required for me to report it. So just keep that in mind. If you are an adult. Right, right. Because if you are a child, it will be mandatory reporting. Yeah. That is true. You know, there is not as much as mandatory reporting in Mexico. So if I were to be your therapist in Mexico and you are a child and you come, come and tell me, it's still up to you mm-hmm. to report. And I can assist you in whatever, but this is still silent, which is sad. I love this policy in this country mm-hmm. that we help children that to report. True. Yeah. I don't know in your country, is in your country? Do you know anything about your country other than the United States? So in Iran, I don't think it, I know it's not mandatory reporting. So mm-hmm. that's not the case, unfortunately, neither. But again, there are organizations that support the parents and uh, protect the kids. But mm-hmm. if you don't have the mandatory reporting, I think that's unfortunate. Because yeah. as a therapist or like clergy or whatever role your role is, your hands are kind of tied as far as the action you can take. Yeah. And maybe the listeners are in other countries and they can inform us so we can expand mm-hmm. our knowledge in this. So let's talk about the family. How a family member can raise the concern when they suspect, but they don't really know if the person is a victim? 
Well, I think one one hope that I have that goes to prevention as well is extremely important to have conversation with your children, teens about consent, sexual abuse, what is an okay touch, what's not an okay touch, with the information that's age appropriate. So in the countries that the, it, this, this information is part of their education system around sexual assault, sexual abuse, they see significant improvement as far as when people report. So hopefully you guys had some conversation, you and your child, your teen, your adult had some conversation about these things. So you're not trying to talk about something that hasn't been talked. But I think first thing is just showing, kind of talking to the person, this is what I notice. I'm here for support, whatever kind of support you might need. So let them know that regardless of what they're going through, you're there for them. So I think that's extremely important for them to feel comfortable sharing with you if they choose to do. I also find, well, maybe I am very brave to talk, but I also find that sometimes asking directly, it gets the out the elephant of the room. Yeah. Right, right. Especially with adults. Because with children, that can be tricky if they're going to be legal proceeding. But you're yeah. absolutely right. With adults, when you're putting it out there at times, it's very helpful. Yes, yes. And, and if your family member is an adult and, and you want to ask, well, sometimes it's just no other way than asking directly. Right. And at times also having some information that, okay, you know, I I noticed that you're having a challenging time. Maybe you want to talk to someone, giving them maybe the name of a therapist, agency, someplace that they have that information in case if they feel more comfortable to first open it up to someone, to a professional. Something to be aware is that if you are an adult and you suspect some other adult is victim of of this crime, it's not up to you to report. It's not up to you to do anything with this information. It's up to the person. Mm-hmm. Even though you want to help because some maybe good souls there want to help and they take the challenge, yeah. But it's not up to them. Mm-hmm. It's just to support and support them in whatever decision. It's most important to support them in whatever decision they take than rather than taking the case on your hands, sort Absolutely. of speak. But if the, if the family member... If you are a victim and the family member does not believe the accusation, because it also happened that a family member may say, you would that happen with my brother? And the mom say, just shut up, put it in the past. That's not true. Do you have any suggestions when they already told to the family members and nothing happened? Well, I think for survivors, their safety is the most important thing. So if you already put it out there, you share that with them. And for any reason, for example, as you said, maybe they're shocked. Maybe they're just, they're so dysregulated, they're not listening to you. You don't need to try to prove it to them. Okay, Mm -hmm. I shared, this is information, I shared it with you. If you find that they're not supportive, find other ways to get support. There are online communities. If you're in the United States, there are, you can call RAIN, they have online chat all sorts of support. So you don't need to go through it yourself alone because part of the pain is like feeling that I'm alone in this. Unfortunately, there are thousands and millions of people around the world experiencing what you're experiencing. So my recommendation is just instead of focusing on persuading your family, find your own tribe that they can support you in this journey. Change family for this particular topic. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And also... The reason is what I say change family is because in my case, the Latino families can be very loyal to their families. Mm -hmm. And they say, 
the dirty laundry stays in home. Well, for this particular topic, you may need outside okay. help. So it is okay to be a little disloyal if that is going to bring you your own mental health. Right. And also, it's normal to have physiological, psychological reaction to this. So if you're kind of feeling I'm going through something, I cannot push it behind myself. I cannot move past it on my own. It's very normal what you're experiencing. And it's important to ask professional help for that. Yeah. And what about if we take the suggestions, if we've been silent for a long time? What are the suggestions for somebody who has been silent for years and years? So I think that that's an important thing is maybe start with talking to a, a, my recommendation would be a professional support group, just like trying to talk about it kind of like with someone that you feel safe. Or for example, at times even, if you find that you had this experience and now you're experiencing other psychological challenges. For example, to be clear, at times I, I work with clients with eating disorders, alcohol, substance issues. So if you find yourself kind of like the trauma is related to those kind of issues, first I would address the maladaptive coping mechanism. If it's an alcohol issues or other kind of issues. And then I start kind of maybe talking to a professional about kind of getting help. So Again, if, that, if this is something that's impacting your psychological well-being. But at times, if you, this is something that you feel it's not necessarily impacting you, but you want to share it with other people, I would start with it, sharing it in a support, supportive environment. Maybe even a friend that you feel like they're very supportive. I think the most important thing is just not keeping it inside and kind of sharing it with a trusted person, trusted professional, or a support group. What about NAS if we also give them the right to be silent? Mm-hmm. That is true. Because what about if for them speaking, talking about it can be another sense of rape or, right. or disrespect to their own beliefs or whatever. So I want you to know if you are a victim that, yes, we give you the right to remain silent. Mm-hmm. It's your experience. You can do whatever you want with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, at the same time, I want to point out, like Nas, you were saying, that it may be, just be aware of the, of the reactions, be aware of, sometimes people tell me, I still, it was many years ago, but I still have trouble having sex with my partner mm-hmm. now. I still see other faces, I still have nightmares, I still have stress, I still cannot talk about that particular place or color or some memories that are triggering, yeah? I think something else that comes to my mind, I think just so important to, as you said, I'm thinking about not to share the benefit of it because at times people share at the platform that are not safe. For example, when we had this Me Too movement, I was getting protective of people, putting it out there when, you know, there are lots of trolls in various communities and internet and you don't want to out yourself to people you don't, if you're not necessarily know if they are safe or not, or you're still in the path, in the journey of recovery. So mm-hmm. I think that's also, I think I love the fact that you said you have the right to remain silent. I also was very protective when some of my colleagues was planning to do a podcast on some victim because my concern was like podcasting can be very private and have their illusion that it's private. Yeah. <laughs> Right, right. So 
yeah, you have the right to remain silent. And if, one thing that I will say is, if you don't feel safe to tell your therapist, it's because you need to change therapy. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's, it's okay. A therapist for me sometimes can be a pair of, like a pair of shoes. We need to try different ones. So right. if you don't feel safe and it's not in your therapy that is a safe space, well, time to change a therapist or even talk to your therapist and say, I'm going for a while with another therapist and come back to you if this is the case. Yeah. Right. And I think part of it comes with competency. Therapists, we all have different strengths, different specialties. Your therapist might be great with helping you to work through like the anxiety or depression you're having, but it's just hard for you to bring up this topic for any reason, or you feel like this is a topic that you want to go with a specialist for any kind of reason. As you said, I love that recommendation of kind of sharing that with your therapist. You know, I might want to kind of like pursue this, this particular thing another professional or I want to take a break, I'll come back to you. And most therapists, they understand that and they appreciate that you're, because your care is the most important thing. Yes. You can be proactive on your own self-care. So do you want to say something else that it was important to say? Yeah. So I think uh, one of the things I wanted to make sure that we all can play a role in it. It's regardless of if you are a family member or your neighbors or you are in the community, we all can take action to eradicate this problem because only, I was looking at 17, I think the number was 20 or 17% of the people who experience sexual assault, they're reporting it. And I think it is important for us to do things to change this culture. Yeah. So meaning that if you're seeing something is wrong, stand up, look, don't be a bystander. Do something about it. Help the survivor, whatever kind of support that you can. Because with remaining silent, we're just like seeing, I don't know if this is my place or not. We are all contributing to the problem. That's right. Yeah. With remaining silent, it creates a culture of fear mm-hmm. of the unknown. Yeah. Wow. It has been a very intense <laughs> I know, I noticed my heart is racing. This is something, something very close to my heart. And I know you are very, uh, you're very passionate about this topic. Oh, yeah. It's, I wish, I still dream for a world where we can not have these mm-hmm. situations happening. But I know it can be a long time before that. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, Thank you. Thank you, Nas. Awesome. Thank you. I hope you you found my conversation with uh, Dr. Roman helpful. I certainly learned about the struggles of Latinas, Latinos communities around seeking mental health and uh, some of the stigmas that people are experiencing. And her podcast and her nonprofit is great. Certainly, if, if you're interested, check it out. It's Emotion and Harmony. And also, I wanted to remind you guys that I recently recorded two bonus episodes, one which is on sex and depression, and the other one is on sex and OCD. So if you are curious to see how having this uh, diagnosis, how having these struggles are impacting your or your loved one's sexuality, certainly check those episodes out. Uh, I talked about uh, what research tells us. I talked about how I see these presentations showing up in my practice. And I'm gonna, I talked about some of the 
common treatments and effective treatments that are out there for these conditions. Anyhow, thank you so much for listening. I am so grateful for every single one of you guys that tuning into this show and sharing these episodes and liking them and uh, leaving reviews. And I love you for doing those, uh, those things and supporting this show. And I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.